Well, as soon as I open my mouth, you will know that I am not originally from Sacramento, California. <laughs> but that is where I presently live, have been for the last 19 years, and pastoring in Emmanuel with an I, not an E. That's your sign language. Uh, Emmanuel Baptist Church. And it has been a joy for me to have fellowship with this congregation, particularly Brother Rolo, but also to meet the brothers who are pastors here now and uh, to come to the great city of Las Vegas. The only real thing I think about in Las Vegas is your church and your soccer team who cannot beat Sacramento Republic because we're too good for them. But uh, as the chaplain of the Sacramento Republic, I have to say that, of course, um, because that's just part of my heritage as a Scotsman. As you can tell, that is where my accent is from. I am taking a little bit of time to say these things to help you tune into the frequency, because I know your American ears struggle with the accent initially, although I have been here long enough that my own congregation tell me they do get 40% of what I tell them. <laughs> so that is encouraging, if, uh, if nothing else. Um, what a joy it is for me to be here, to be asked to come and to minister the Word of God to you uh, this weekend. I count it a great privilege, and I'm very thankful our own congregation has been praying for this conference, and we are glad to join uh, arms, as it were, in the fellowship of the gospel. It is my responsibility in this last session tonight, before you all fall asleep, uh, to speak to you on what does it mean that Christ is the head of the church. And to do that, I want to turn to Matthew 28. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, please do that. And uh, consider with me the verses that Pastor Corey has already drawn your attention to in the previous session, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. My particular focus is on this first statement of our Savior. Remember the context. Our Lord Jesus has died and risen from the dead, but He has not yet ascended into heaven. He is now gathering His apostles to commission them to go into all the world and to make disciples. We might say to go into all the world and establish the church. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and He spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray together. Our great God in heaven, it is good that we can truly say it is well with our souls. And it is well with our souls because of Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, the only mediator between God and man, the Savior of sinners. And we come to you this evening, our Father, in the name of your Son, desiring that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, come now and minister to each and every one of us as we consider what it means for your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the head of the church. Oh, our God, may we behold something of the beauty, something of the majesty, something of the dominion and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ as we consider Him. For we ask it in His name. Amen. Authority is a controversial issue. Ever since Satan rebelled against God and seduced our first parents into rejecting the authority of God in the garden, the world 
in which we live has been in turmoil and conflict regarding authority. There is conflict in marriage about authority. There is conflict in the family about authority. There's conflict in the state about authority. And therefore, it should not surprise us that there is conflict in the church about authority. Authority was at the very heart of the controversy in the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. It was also at the very heart of the controversy in the English Civil Wars of the 17th century, during which the Westminster Confession of Faith was forged in England, and from which the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith has come down to us. I make no apology for saying to you tonight that it is my personal judgment that what we have in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and uh, dare I say it even better in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, what we have there, I believe, is the best expression of Christian theology in the history of the church. What we have in our confession is the best expression, the best summary of what the Bible teaches. I'm confident that you've had Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door. You've had Mormons come to your door. They will say to you, we believe the Bible just like you. But there's another question you have to ask. What do you believe the Bible teaches? That is a critically important question to ask. And however you answer that question you begin to formulate your confession of faith. You see, we all have a confession of faith. Some of us, it's in our heads, and it's a bit jumbled up. Others of us have done a bit more research and study and come to realize that greater minds than us have considered these things in the past, and we've discovered we don't have to reinvent the wheel we have to understand the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And we have then to consider the great minds of the church that have given to us our confession of faith, the one that particularly is our focus during this conference, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which, just to make it more confusing, was actually written in 1677. But Baptists would have to do something like that, wouldn't they? When we ask the question, what does it mean that Christ is the head of the church? We are actually opening up the question of authority. Descending, as our 1689 confession does, from the Westminster Confession of 1646, it's important to remember that our forefathers' confession of faith was shaped in the fires of controversy. What was going on in England in the 1640s, even to this day, has an impact on our Western civilization. When the king declared that he was the head of the church, and it wasn't Charles that did that, it was Henry VIII that did that, he was setting himself up as the authority in the church. By the time you get to Charles I, who was also claiming to be the head of the church, Parliament were getting a bit tired of it. They were getting a bit fed up with this king. And they were wanting to battle over authority. Authority in the state and authority in the church. And of course, then the question arises, who then is the head of the church? Who has the authority in the church? The king and his bishops, they wanted it to be them. 
Parliament said no. We believe it needs to be clearly taught that it is Jesus Christ who is the head of the church. And that is why in our Westminster Confession of Faith, the Presbyterian Confession, it is stated very clearly that Christ is the head of the church. And our Baptist forebears who wanted to clearly show unity with their Presbyterian cousins, they also then declared that Christ is the head of the church. And here's what they wrote in paragraph 4 of chapter 26. You have it there in your notes. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Can't get much clearer than that, can you? It's good when confessions of faith are clear, unambiguous. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Now, if they just stop there, we would be fine. We wouldn't get into any hot water apart from maybe with Charles I and a few English kings. But then our forebears go on and they, write, they wrote this, Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ, and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. You know that you are loved by brothers when they invite you to Las Vegas to preach on the Pope being the Antichrist. <laughs> but that is what we want to think about tonight, in part as we consider what does it mean that Christ is the head of the church. As we answer this question, I want you to particularly see here in this paragraph, as we show how it, it's taught from Scripture, I want you to see essentially three truths. I want you to see the identity of the head of the church. I want you to see the function of the head of the church. And then I want you to see the usurper of the head of the church. Yes, we're going to deal with the Pope being the Antichrist. That's why half of you are here, isn't it? If I'd been in Northern Ireland, the place would have been packed where I used to pastor many years ago. But we have to deal with this paragraph and understand it in its context historically so that we would understand exactly what our forefathers were teaching and what they were not teaching because it's clear to me that there is a lot of misunderstanding about what they are saying here. But let's consider first of all then what our confession says here about the identity of the head of the church. We see very clearly, without equivocation or discussion, the statement that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And that is, that is if you will, straight in the face of the King of England and straight in the face of the Pope of Rome. Our forebears are declaring Jesus is the head of the church. He is the head of the church by the appointment of the Father. Turn for a minute to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul declares this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. Speaking of our Savior, He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now, we must understand, you see, that when we come to consider what does it mean that Christ is the head of the church, we must first of all consider Christ himself. We must consider, first of all, the identity of the head of the church, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we come to the 26th chapter of our confession— we must not read it as though there are not 25 chapters before it. There are 25 chapters written before we get to the 26th chapter for a reason. 
Because our forefathers are thinking through theologically how to understand what the Bible teaches. So it's interesting in chapter 1, isn't it? That what you have in our confession is this, of Holy Scripture. What the Scriptures say about themselves. Because the first thing anybody ever does to you in order to teach you the Bible is hand you a Bible. Well, then you should be asking yourself, what did you just hand me? What is this? Ah, this is the Word of God. And you must know what the Bible is if you're going to understand what the Bible teaches. You see the wisdom of our forefathers? These were educated men. These were thoughtful men. These were men who were concerned to teach the people of God vitally important truths that they could put their feet on concrete and stand when all the winds of the world would come against them. And so our forefathers begin in our confession by saying, well, here's what we confess the Bible is. And in summary, we'll just say it's the Word of God. Though there are a number of paragraphs you want to spend time meditating on. But then it's interesting because where do they go after that? Of God. What's the first thing that you're introduced to when you're given a Bible? God. Because the minute you open up your Bible and you read the first, part, the first verse, what does it say? In the beginning, God. Well, who is God? How am I supposed to know about this God? Well, our forefathers then spent time explaining to us all that the Scriptures teach about God. And so it goes on. And what you have in our confession is the foundational truths regarding God and regarding the Trinity and regarding man and the fall and regarding God's Son, Jesus Christ, in the eighth chapter and in the seventh chapter, God's covenant. And it's all logical and it's all sensible and it makes sense when you suddenly realize what they're really doing is just walking us through what the Bible teaches about God. Christ, man, fall, redemption, glory, you name it, right? That's why a confession of faith is so good, you see. That's why Spurgeon said it's an excellent tool to teach Christians the truth as fast as possible. You know why you need to know the truth as fast as possible? Because the devil's out to stop you believing the truth. The devil wants to keep you either in ignorance or superstition. And in, in Las Vegas tonight, there are millions of people in ignorance and there's millions of people in superstition. And they're all perishing. Unless they come to a knowledge of God, as our brother Corey reminded us, through the Scriptures, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we think of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, being declared the head of the church, we don't just look at this phrase and, and, and forget that actually we can understand who Christ is from all that the confession has actually laid out. For example, in chapter 2 of the confession of God and of the Holy Trinity, we read this, the Lord our God. That's the word for God, the covenant name of God. And Jesus is the Lord, Yahweh, telling us what? That this Jesus, who is the head of the church, He is divine. He is a possessing of a divine nature. Very important to understand. Very important to grasp. But then notice what it goes on to say. That he who is the second person of the Godhead, he is one of the three persons, or better, subsistences, or in, in God. He is the Word become flesh. He's got a human nature, as well as a divine nature. And here's what it says in chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, paragraph 1. It pleased God, that is God the Father, in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both to be mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of His church. You see, when you get to chapter 26, 
describing Christ as the head of the church. It's not the first time it's been mentioned in the confession. He's already been identified for us way back in, in chapter 8. And when we think then of Jesus Christ, it's so important to understand we're thinking here about God becoming man. We're thinking here about divinity and humanity, two natures in one person. There is none like Jesus. You are one person with one nature. So am I. But Jesus, He is one person with two natures. You say, Pastor Briggs, can you explain that further? No. I can't explain it further. The reality is that He is very God of very God and very man of very man, and you'll be singing it in two months. Though we should sing it in June, July, and August as well, because it's just as important then as it is coming up to Christmas, isn't it? He's been appointed by the Father, that is, the, the God, the Son, the second person of the Godhead, the one who is the only begotten of the Father. He has been appointed to take upon himself human nature in order to bring fallen mankind into a right relationship again with God. And it's so important for us when we think of Christ being the head of the church that we don't just jump over the fact that He is God come in the flesh. He is the Word become flesh. That we ponder that, that we reflect on that, that we think upon that. Divine nature and human nature forever united together in one person as sovereign over all. This is our Lord. This is the King of glory. This is the one who sits enthroned right now in heaven itself, as we sit here in Las Vegas tonight. This is the one who is ruling and reigning supreme at the right hand of the Father, in that realm that is beyond our ability to see, but we know is there because God tells us it is in His Word. He has been appointed by the Father to function as the go-between, the mediator, right? You see, we could never get back up to God ourselves. God had to come down to us. And this is what He has done by taking upon Himself our human nature and becoming our mediator, our go-between. The Father appointed the Son to take upon Himself our nature. Now, here's a bit of controversy for you. Think about this when you go to sleep tonight. There was no vacancy in heaven when Jesus was on the earth. It was divine nature entering into created order to take, divine, to take human nature to itself, to, con to, to, to bring about the person of Jesus Christ, but He never ceased to be what He had always been, even though He became what He had never been before. This is the Christology of the church. This is the great understanding of the church, the hypostatic union. This is why Jesus can save us, because He's not a mere man keeping the law. He's God in human form keeping the law. You see, Jesus came to save us from God, because apart from Jesus saving us from God, we'd face wrath and eternal punishment. It's vital we understand this. You see, we're all under condemnation because of Adam. But because of the second Adam, who is God come in the flesh, there is hope. There is forgiveness. There is peace with God. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, let me say this to you. There is none like Jesus he alone is able to save you because of who He is. He's not merely a good man. He is the God-man. 
that he might bring you to God through his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection from the dead. And in his sinless life, and in his sacrificial death, and in his resurrection from the dead, God then highly exalted him to that place of honor, that place of rule, that place of authority, that place of heavenly session at the right hand of God in order to do what? To apply the redemption that he had accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. You see, when it comes to Christ as the head of the church, we must understand, first of all, who Christ is. God come in the flesh. But we must then understand what Christ has done, accomplished redemption. To then realize that as He now sits in heaven at the right hand of the Father, what is He doing through the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, as Pastor Corey reminds us? He is applying His finished work to the lives of lost sinners just like you and just like me. And that's why there was a time in your life and a time in mine when we were children of wrath, facing condemnation. But God, who is rich in mercy and abundant in grace, you know what He did? He put someone across your path to tell you about His Son. And He sent sent His Spirit into your heart to make you alive. You who once were deaf. You who once were blind. You who once were dead in your trespasses and sins. He put someone across your path to tell you the Word. And He sent His Spirit into your heart to make you alive. That you would understand that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And when you believed, just like pilgrim, the burden of sin and guilt and alienation from God was removed. You came to know God for yourself through believing in Christ. And as Christ is enthroned in heaven, with all authority having been invested into him, he is the head of the church. He is the firstborn amongst many brethren. He is the one whom the Father is bringing about a new humanity out of the old humanity of the fallen world, out of every kindred and tongue, people, a nation. That's why guys like me with my accent get into heaven because of Jesus. And that's like guys like you with your accents get into heaven because of Jesus. Because out of the, the mass of fallen humanity, God in Christ is bringing about a new humanity. And He's going to bring them all to glory. Not one shall be lost for whom the Savior died. That brings us to consider then the function of the head of the church. The function of the head of the church. Because the second main point of this paragraph identifies clearly that Christ, who is the head of the church at the appointment of the Father, He is functioning in a particular way in heaven, and He's effecting what is going on on the earth. And it's so important for us to see this. The church is supernatural. I think we can sometimes lose sight of that in our Western materialism of the 21st century. When we understand not only the identity of Christ as the head of the church, but the role of Christ as the head of the church, we begin to see some of the realities then of what Pastor Corey was talking about in the first session. We have to observe in the summary of Christ's power here, His authority and His power, uh, we have really what He does. What He does. You see, as we sit here this evening, as we sit here tomorrow, as we sit here on the Lord's day, Christ sits in glory working out His eternal purpose. And notice what our 
the confession says here. There are four particular functions or four particular aspects to his function that we actually have to identify. Christ calls, Christ institutes, Christ orders, and Christ governs. Now, what's interesting about our confession, again, is the fact that paragraph 5 deals with call, paragraph 6 deals with instituting, paragraph 7 orders, and paragraph 8 governs. So if I was to expound all that for you tonight, we'd still be here tomorrow when the next session starts. So I'm not going to do that. I'm just simply going to skip over this and show you the glory of what Christ is doing, and it should encourage you, if you're a Christian, to realize that Christ in heaven tonight and tomorrow and the next day until He comes in His glory, this is what He is doing. And we can look to Him and be confident. He's been invested uh, into this office as head. It's a legal term that speaks of God putting Him in position, particularly to rule and to govern. He's been, in, he's been installed there by the Father in order to fulfill his role in what is known as the covenant of redemption. And that's what chapter 7 in our confession is all about. The covenant of redemption where the Father gave to the Son a, a great multitude which no man could number on the basis that the Son would become man and redeem them through his life, death, and resurrection, and that the Spirit would then effectually call all that the Father has given to the Son out of the world to form the new humanity that will inhabit the new heavens and the new earth. This is the glorious hope of the church. This is the glorious hope of the gospel. And we must understand that Christ has established the covenant of grace, the new covenant, as a result of fulfilling the covenant of redemption. And because Christ has fulfilled the covenant of redemption, He's now established the covenant of grace, God the Father will make sure with Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit that the eternal purpose of God will come to pass. And so notice, he calls, according to paragraph 5, all that the Father has given to him by way of the ministry of the Word and the Spirit. And I won't labor that because Pastor Corey's done a good job in reminding, of us, reminding us of it already. But notice, he gathers them into particular societies. That's local churches. That's what Matthew 28 is all about. Jesus declares to his apostles, all authority has been given to me as a result of my fulfilling the will of the Father in my life, death, and resurrection. Now, because I've got all authority, I'm sending you out as my representatives into the world to proclaim the gospel. And what do the apostles do? They go out and proclaim the gospel. And they write down for us that which we need. Now, of course, the apostle Paul wasn't there at that point. He was an apostle out of due time, right? But he would come in to the, to the number and he would write the majority of the New Testament for us so that how does Christ speak to his church today? Through the Word of God, and only the Word of God. Someone comes to you and says they've got a word from the Lord, and they're not quoting the Bible, they're a liar. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. God gets the blame for a whole lot of nonsense. They being dead, that's the apostles, yet speak. How do they do it? Through the Scriptures that they have left behind. The mind of the Spirit is in the Word of God. You don't need to look anywhere else for the mind of the Spirit or the mind of Christ. You've got it right here. And 500 years ago, a man called William Tyndale laid down his life so that you could have a copy in English and you didn't have to learn Greek and Hebrew, though that's not a bad idea, or read it in Latin, which isn't a bad idea either, by the way. But if the truth be told, most of us even have problems reading English, and Rollo even thinks I can't speak English. But William Tyndale understood, you see, what we all should understand. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And we need to understand the Word of God in our own language. That's why Bible translation to this day is very important. 
All across the world, we need the entrance of the Word of God to bring light to the nations. You know that there are still thousands of people groups without a copy of the Bible in their own language. That was free. What we must understand, though, is that the Word of God gives us the mind of God, the mind of Christ. And God in Christ calls us to believe in Him, repent of sin, and then what? Gather under His Lordship in particular societies to be taught all things whatsoever He has commanded. And did you notice at the end of the text, Jesus said this to His apostles, And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. How is Jesus with us? By His Spirit, in His Word. That's how Jesus is with us. Jesus is physically in heaven at the right hand of the Father, right? You won't see Him until He comes again in His glory, and come again in His glory He will. But in the meantime, He's with us here now by His Spirit through His Word. And we're called then to gather in the presence of Christ that's why it's true. Internet church, don't cut it, right? The presence of Christ is where two or three are gathered together in His name, doing His work, right? You know that there is a special presence of Christ when the church gathers that you don't get when you're having your devotions at home in your cupboard, that you don't get at your dining, your dining room table when you're having family worship. Though it's good to have personal devotion, and though it's good to have family worship, There is nothing more glorious than gathering with the people of God on the Lord's day in the presence of God to be taught all things whatsoever Christ commands. And I say that to you on the authority of the Word of God. So Christ calls. But what does Christ do as well as calling? He institutes. And we see this in paragraph 6. He calls those ones into local churches, and He institutes His church. And how does He do it? Well, there are two ordinances that He's given us. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, being a good Baptist, it's only believers that we should be baptizing. No offense, Presbyterian cousins, but I just think you're wrong. We're to baptize, and we are to observe the Lord's Supper. And that means we're to keep short accounts with each other in our relationships so that we might then love Christ and love one another. We're to gather for prayer and the ministry of the Word. And all of that's set out in chapter 22 of our confession and religious worship on the Sabbath day. And then notice, according to paragraph 7, We're to actually worship and we're to carry out discipline. We're to administer, if you will, or order the church according to the mind of Christ. And then in paragraph 8, it talks about governing, and that refers to qualified officers who will administer the affairs of Christ in His church, give leadership, guidance to the church of Christ. Here's the point. What is the role of Christ? As the head of the church, it is to rule the church. It is to govern the church according to His means. The ministry of His Word by the power of His Spirit is to order His church. It's to tell His church how to worship. It's to tell His church when to worship. It's to tell His church what to do in worship. We need to understand that pastors are not to be innovators. Pastors are to be facilitators. We're not to be innovators. Well, I think it would be a good idea this week if we maybe had a couple of clowns come up and tell a few jokes for Jesus, and that would be good for the church on a Sunday morning. Or maybe we could have some people in the front here, and we could get flags, and we could just dance and run around and wave flags. I think that would be a good idea. Where does Jesus advocate any of that stuff? No, facilitators is, I'm going to take seriously what the mind of Christ is in the Word of God, and I'm going to do only what Christ commands. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Why? Because when the day comes, I'm going to give an account to the king as to how I ordered one of his particular societies. 
And as church members, you should be concerned that you belong to a church where the mind of Christ is followed, where the authority of Christ is recognized, where the attitude is that we only do what Christ says as His church. We don't invent our own notions and ideas. Christ never blesses disobedience. Christ never blesses that which is contrary to His Word. He blesses that which is according to His Word. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, it's important to see that when we think of Christ as the head of the church, we think of Him as the God-man, the only mediator between God and man, the one who has uh, loved us and given Himself for us, and the one who is now interceding at the right hand of the Father on our behalf, and the one who is applying His redemption to us and ordering His church according to His purpose. And that brings us to the third and final and perhaps most controversial part of my address to you tonight. We have to beware of the usurper of the head of the church. Now, there are many usurpers. What do I mean by usurper? Somebody who sets themselves up as authority in the church. You can have pastors who do that. A pastor who tells the church they're going to do what they want to do and not what Jesus wants to do is basically a usurper of Christ's authority in the church. You get them in Baptist churches just as much as you get them in any other church. So beware. Hold your pastors to account that they do what the Scriptures command to be done, what the mind of Christ commands to be done. But the ultimate and largest and most well-known and infamous usurper on the face of the planet today is undoubtedly the one that is mentioned here in the Confession and very controversially the Pope of Rome. Now, it's important to understand historically this issue. Most Americans, when they hear about the Antichrist, they think about a movie called Thief in the Night, or they think about a Hal Lindsey book that they read, right? Such has been the terrible influence of dispensational premillennialism in America that the church is all confused. And that might be you tonight. But you realize before the 1830s, nobody believed all that in the history of the church. Before the 1830s, in the Protestant Reformed tradition, it was believed that the Pope was the Antichrist. But here's an important point to understand, because I think this is really important. The confessions of the Protestant Reformation do not speak of the Pope being the Antichrist in an eschatological way. The way you think about it as an American evangelical because you've been brainwashed by premillennialism. Right? You automatically think eschatology. You automatically think God's time clock has stopped and it will restart with Israel and halfway through the, uh, the, the tribulation period there's going to be an Antichrist. And you think eschatologically, right? We've all been there. I grew up that way, right? So no, no offense. But here's the reality. That's not how our forefathers viewed the Pope at all. They didn't think eschatologically. They're thinking ecclesiologically. They're thinking about it in terms of the church. That's why it's in, guess what, chapter? The chapter on the church. It's not on the chapter in the last things. In the confession, which is the last couple of chapters, it's in the chapter in the church. Now, why is this? Because the Pope, just like the King of England, who sets himself up as the head of the English church, which is different because the Pope sets himself up as the, Pope, the, the head of the whole church, right? That's why it's called the Roman Catholic Church. You see, I hope you're a Catholic, but not a Roman Catholic, right? Now, let me explain. If you're a visiting Roman Catholic today, that is not meant to be offensive. Let me explain something to you. The great Schism at the Reformation was over authority, the authority of Scripture and the authority of the Pope, right? And the authority of Christ in His church, right? Before the Reformation, there was only one church. It was the Catholic Church. Not the Roman Catholic Church, though there was this group in Rome that were getting more ascendancy uh, and, and they, they were definitely getting more influence. No, it goes all the way back to the apostles, right? We believe in a universal church, a Catholic church. The confession says that at the very beginning of the chapter, right? So we are Catholics. 
I have no problem with that. When I came from Northern Ireland to America, I thought it was interesting because people talk about Catholics, and they mean Roman Catholics. But in Northern Ireland, you talk about Roman Catholics, not Catholics, because Catholics are just Christians who believe that there's one church, right? I'm a Catholic. I hope you're a Catholic. But if you're a Roman Catholic, now you're taking on all the doctrines and the trappings of the Roman bishop, including things like transubstantiation, including things like the co-redemptrix idea of the Virgin Mary. And now you've got all of that to contend with. Well, our forefathers, they understood this. Why? Because this was the great contention back in 15, the 1500s and the 1600s, right? That the Roman Catholic Pope was not the head of the church. He did not have the authority on the earth to tell the church how to be. That was Christ's role, and Christ's role alone. And anyone, pastor, bishop, pope, who takes it on, takes on the authority of Christ in the church that Christ hasn't given them, they're a usurper of the authority of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, we have to be very clear on this. The Helvetic Confession, the Belgic Confession, the Scots Confession, the Bohemian, the Anglican Confessions, they all recognized, in terms of the doctrine of the church, the Pope is the Antichrist. Now, what does it mean, Antichrist? It doesn't mean against Christ. It means in the place of Christ. That's what it means, that he puts himself in the place of Christ as the one having authority. And our forefathers said, no, that's not right. That's not true. That is to be the man of sin. That is to be the son of perdition that Paul warns of in 2 Thessalonians. And what do we find then? We find then that our forefathers, they resisted any usurper, anyone who would set themselves up in the authority of Christ in the church and of course, they particularly address the Pope, because arguing from the greater to the lesser, if he's not to be the usurper, no one's to be the usurper. And of course, we agree that there should be no usurping of Christ's authority in the church. Christ's the head. He's the one who tells us what to believe. He's the one who tells us how to order our lives. He's the one who holds us to account. He's the one who gave us his spirit. He's the one who shed his blood. He's the one who sits on the throne of glory, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. And he's the one who's coming again to bring us home. And so, therefore, we can glory in Christ who is our Savior, and who is the head of the church. And that's why we come here, isn't it? We come here to praise God through the only one who gives us access, Jesus Christ. That's why we pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. That's what it means to gather for worship. We come to worship God, the one God who exists in three persons, because there is no other God, and there is no other way to know Him except the one way that He has provided, and that is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we're not trying to be difficult or awkward with people when we say to them, look, Mohammed can do nothing for you. Look, the Virgin Mary cannot bring you to God. Look, all the Hindu gods are of no, of no value. Buddha is useless. There is only one mediator between God and man, and it's God who set it up that way. There is only one way, as we tell the children, to get to heaven, and Jesus is the only way. And we must be clear about that, brothers and sisters. We're not making any apology. We're not trying to be strange, narrow-minded people. This is the way of salvation revealed in the Scriptures. And there's no other way for us to be right with God, to be, avoid hell and to avoid wrath, except to believe in Christ. Because, you see, there's nobody else come to save us. Only Jesus. He's the only one. And He's the only one who can save us because of who He is. God come in the flesh. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, recognize 
that as the head of the church, he alone possesses all authority. That is, what he says goes, goes. He's the one who possesses all power. What he is able to do shall be accomplished. He calls us into local societies. He institutes those societies by way of his gospel, by way of baptism and the Lord's Supper. He orders those societies according to his commands in worship and in discipline, and he gifts to those societies pastors and teachers to instruct them in all things whatsoever he has commanded. And this is what it means to be a Christian and part of the church, is to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so we can declare with the hymn writer, crown the Savior, angels crown him. Rich the trophies Jesus brings. On the seat of power enthrone him while the vault of heaven rings. Crown him. Crown him. Crown the Savior, King of kings. He is the head of the church, and we bow and worship him and him alone. Amen. Let's pray. Blessed God, we confess to you that we do not behold him as we ought. We do not esteem him as we should, but we rejoice that we do believe in him, the Savior whom you have sent, the only mediator between God and man, the one who is the head of the church. We pray, our God, that even as we go from this place this evening, we contemplate in our hearts something of the wonder of God become man in the person of Jesus Christ, that we ponder the wonder of His sinless life and His sacrificial death and His glorious resurrection. We think upon His ascension into heaven where He is even now, and we, we rest in the fact that He prays for us. And because He prays for us, we shall make it to glory. We pray, Father, that we would live our lives out in the light of the fact that He's coming again to bring us into a new heavens and a new earth wherein shall dwell only righteousness. But until then, Father, as we seek to be the church militant upon the earth, we pray, our God, that we might look to Jesus day by day, growing in our knowledge of Him, delighting in our fellowship of Him, desiring to live for Him, and to tell those who know Him not of the wonder of who He is and what He does for us when we trust Him. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.